For the week of December 10th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 641, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. Oh, sure, now you're in Los Angeles, but a minute ago, you were parting the Red Sea. Yes, I was swimming. I swam from one... No, I didn't swim, obviously. I was there for the Red Sea International Film Festival, which we will be talking about later on during this particular... How many years has the film festival been around? Three years. This is its third year. And Saudi Arabia, or do we say the Middle East? How long have there been movie theaters in Saudi Arabia? Five years, right? Five years. years, So, two years after they began to have movie theaters, they started a film festival. So, you're actually kind of going to the Middle East, you're you're working with exhibitors, and you're talking to people, and you're seeing movies. You're also sort of seeing a film industry be born. They've never had a movie industry because they've never been able to make movies and show them in their own country. What's that like? It's absolutely fascinating i mean do you want to talk about the the festival now we can talk about it up front no i no we can get to the movies that you liked i just want overall i just thought the tech that end of it was really interesting to me it is i mean they have a market at the uh during the festival they have something called uh the red sea souk and it is a market not the casbah it's not the red sea casbah (laughs) <laughs> no, that would that would be more in the on the Morocco or Tunisian or Algerian. Okay, showing my ignorance. Uh, and uh, it's very it, it's you know there's basically production companies, production services. Neom is there, uh, which is a part of Saudi Arabia that that allow you know uh, where you can go and shoot a film. They have studios there. Film Alula is there, uh, where you know where lots of Lawrence of Arabia was shot in that particular part of the world. Uh, it's, uh, so that, that part of it is very much like can in, in a way, but instead of talking about movies worth, you know, looking for millions and millions and millions of dollars of a budget, the budgets are much smaller. The players, uh, the, the actors are not necessarily well known outside of the region. Uh, it's a, it's a film industry that is growing and learning how to make movies. And it's absolutely fascinating because five years ago, none of this existed. I don't know why the budgets would be small because they got money. <laughs> That's one, you know, if they want to build a building, it's like, let's make it a hundred stories tall. Well, it's more a matter of, okay, we're making this movie. We don't know whether it's going to work in this region, even though it comes from this region. So let's do the smart thing and not spend a hundred million dollars on a movie that we're not sure will even work. So they'll spend <laughs> two or $3 million on it. You know, it's kind of the thing that Hollywood used to do. All right. Well, we've got some housekeeping before we get into the show. First of all, we talked about the new movie made from a fake trailer in the Grindhouse films. Uh, In fact, Thanksgiving, that horror flick, is the fourth real movie to be made from a fictitious trailer created for the Grindhouse double bill. The others are Machete and its sequel, Machete Kills, both starring Danny Trejo, and Hobo with a Shotgun, starring Rutger Hauer. So that leaves the question, when can we see Werewolf Women of the SS? I mean, Rob Zombie actually shot half an hour of the movie just to make the trailer. So all we need is like another 60, 30 minutes and we got a movie. Thank you to well, our in-house these film. Days- these days, you'd need about four and a half hours. because <laughs> 61 or four and a half. One of the two. Yeah. One of the two. So thanks to our in-house film critic, Aaron Rich, for that information. I thought of another example of a fictitious trailer becoming a real movie, and that would be History of the World Part 2. 
The best part of Mel Brooks's movie History of the World was the trailer for part two. It was just a joke, like Hitler on ice and Jews in space. And now it's a TV series, I guess, but they did create History of the World part two. One other thing, Daryl Hall and John Oates. Rolling Stone just has a story about why a Broadway musical based on their songs fell apart. Uh, Spoiler alert, the guys fought all the time. (laughs) But I want to clarify, their dispute does not involve music publishing like we suggested. It involves a separate conversation company that covers much of their mutual work like image and likeness rights, website, merchandising, and so on. However, the company John Oates wants to sell to, Primary Wave, does in fact already own a significant interest in their song catalog, which Daryl Hall regrets. So there you go. By the way, I did just watch live from Daryl's house and the new episode with uh, Robert Fripp, the great guitarist that he collaborated on, on one of his best albums of all time. It's called Sacred Songs. And you can watch that whole episode for free on YouTube. It's very cool. And so just ignore their feud and and listen to the very best of Daryl Hall and John Oates from 2001 or Abandoned Luncheonette, Change of Season, Do It For Love or Solo Daryl like that album, Sacred Songs or Can't Stop Dreaming. But that's what we were talking about last week. What are we going to talk about this week on Showbiz Sandbox? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are really feeling the pressure. We've got our end-of-the-year podcast extravaganza to arrange. Michael, Mm -hmm. by the way, Bad Bunny is not available, okay? So we're going to need a new musical guest, so get to work on that. Plus, we want to catch up on all the Oscar hopefuls hitting theaters, buy gifts, deal with the fallout from the absurd college football Final Four selection. Outrageous! Yeah, can you believe it? Uh, And, you know, keep the entertainment business humming. That's really what we wanted. We just said we're going to talk about the Red Sea Film Festival. Plus, it's award season, and we've got some accolades to acknowledge, like the New York Film Critics, the LA Film Critics, the National Board of Review, and so many more. They're all interesting, but whether they actually impact the Oscars is another story entirely. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at the town hall Bob Iger held at Disney. It's really a tough job running one of the biggest companies in the world, but Bob 1.0 just wants you to think of him as, you know, one of the cool kids. Okay, yeah. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. La 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 Oh, shoot. I was doing my vocal exercises uh, preparing, but I forgot to mute. <clears throat> anyway, we're looking at the worldwide what? box office. I don't even know where that, I don't even know what that's a joke about. I... <laughs> It's the worldwide box office for the week ending December 10th, and the number one film around the world is a tie. We have Wonka, starring Timothy Chalamet and directed by Paul King of Paddington fame, and we have Animal, the second week for the Indian Hindi action film about an alpha male. Both of those movies made $43 million worldwide. Wonka was opening up in many territories, though not North America, and Animal is all over the world. It made a total now of $85 million, so a great hold in the second week for Animal. So Wonka and Animal both made $43 million this week. Then we have the Hunger Games prequel, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Boy, was I wrong about this. I really thought no one would care, but I was wrong. $35 million this week, $280 million worldwide. It will easily triple its reported budget of $100 million. I thought it would fall hard and fast. I was wrong. Napoleon, however, 
He has met his Waterloo, $34 million this week, $171 million worldwide, but it seems to be falling hard and fast, like I expected for the Hunger Games. This one is, you know, not going to pay out. But again, it's by a streamer and they have different standards. They're, all this money is sort of found money. They could have just posted it on their streaming device, but they're getting all the buzz all the attention, and some cash to defray the cost of the movie, which was very expensive. So in our book, it's a win. Uh, Disney did not have a win with Wish. The animated film made $25 million this week. It's at $106 million worldwide. In Korea, they've got a hit. I don't know how much it costs, but 12-12 The Day, which is a Korean drama about the 1979 military coup in that country. That made $17 million this week. It's at $51 million total. That's almost the exact same amount as Godzilla minus one, which made $17 million this week and is at $52 million worldwide. I saw it last night. It is by far the most serious Godzilla movie I've ever seen. It's like a serious post-World War II Japanese drama. And then, oh my God, there's Godzilla. (laughs) <laughs> and then there's some serious drama and then, oh, there's Godzilla. It was, it was good. The cast wasn't quite up to the demands of the script and they wimped out a little bit at the end, but I, I, it was a solid movie. Probably the best Godzilla film, unless you're going campy, since the original. Really, I, I quite liked it. It won't be on my best of the year list, but it was fun. It was good. Did you see it? I have not seen it. I, I haven't seen Napoleon either. I did see The Boys in the Boat, though. I saw that last night at, at oh, uh, the Academy Theater. Ooh, that is my pick for these subtle, secret, late, late, you know, charging Oscar hopeful. How was it? Did you like it? I liked it. I mean, it's. Oh, uh, I liked it. That was a little, the vocal sound was like. Oh, yeah. Not on my 10 best of the year list, like you always like to say. You know, it's, I I likened it to people who saw it. uh, It was at the Academy. Uh, It was obviously an Academy screening that was the, the LA premiere. Uh, and I likened it to Rocky with a boat or Seabiscuit well, with a boat. Well, those are both Oscar nominees and or Oscar winners. Yeah, you're right, actually. So maybe you're, maybe I'm. That's not the right comparison. Them. How was the reaction in the audience? Were they thrilled or were they like, they oh, that was nice? Well, they so there you go. Hmm. Well, they like seeing George Clooney, too. Uh, but I saw The Boy in the Heron, the Miyazaki film, saw that. $15 million worldwide. It's at $114 million and counting. It, in one weekend, I, I'm so happy. It's number one in North America. It made like $12 million over its opening four days from Thursday night to Sunday. Uh, it's now, it's, it's basically made more than Spirited Away made in its entire original run, which blows me away. But with some reissues, Spirited Away made a total of $15 million. That's the most Miyazaki ever made in the U.S. He really barely registered in North America, even though he's a master. I really thought Spirited Away would have made more money. So the boy in the heron will quickly become the highest grossing Miyazaki film of all time in our market, North America. And it was very good. Uh, I thought it was his best in Spirited Away. It's so strange and surreal. In the middle of the movie, I'm like, wait, how did we get here? <laughs> like, it's just, It just goes off on these crazy little tangents, but I really liked it. So if you like him at all, it's well worth checking out. Back to the charts. So Long for Love, a Chinese weepy. Uh, this is a, seems to be about a daughter who misses her dad and finds comfort in her dog. For a while, I thought it was a reincarnation thing, but no, it's just a straightforward weepy. It made $14 million this week. We were off last week, of course. It's at $27 million and counting. Trolls Band Together is at $175 million. Uh, back to China, The Invisible Guest, a crime thriller. That opened to $13 million. And the 
spooky movie, Love Life Light, a Chinese film that made $12 million and had about $3 million in previews. So it's at $15 million total and counting. It's a spooky film about a nurse who's a heroine dealing with some strange goings on at the hospital. But looking at the trailer, I was surprised because there were scenes with yellow umbrellas in them. And yellow umbrellas were the symbol of the Hong Kong people fighting for freedom and democracy and demanding their rights, unsuccessfully so, unfortunately. And I was really surprised to see them in a Chinese film. So if you know why that didn't register and they said, hey, cut out the yellow umbrellas, make them purple, uh, let us know. Was it uh, was it yellow umbrellas or it was yellow jackets in the in France? But wasn't it just umbrellas in Hong Kong? No, I looked it up just to make sure. I believe they were yellow umbrellas, but but there you go. Yeah, I, let us I did know, look by it the up. Way, if, yeah, and let us know. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. And we are also on Facebook, where our our page can be found at facebook.com slash showbizsandbox and at twitter.com slash showbizsandbox, which I guess is now called X. So there, there's all, all of our, uh, our, our details. Yeah, were the censors asleep at the wheel? Maybe it's because they have so many Chinese films to deal with. Now, Hollywood movies opening up in China, Wonka collapsed. It did not do well at all in China, but they've got other movies on the chart this week. They have Across the Furious Sea, which is about to hit $75 million. They have Endless Journey, which is a drama based on a true story that opened to $10 million. Uh, we've, they've got, where's that other movie? One more movie, Trending Topic, about grassroots journalism, another surprising topic for a Chinese film. Normally, they don't champion grassroots journalism, but that movie made $2 million this week. It's at $9 million and counting. Looking for any other stories to tell about the charts, Universal has an animated film. I have to say it was a, uh, uh, a pretty amusing trailer. It's called Migration. It opened up to $7 million in a few small territories. Oh, and there is another Chinese Hong Kong film. It's an action film co-directed by Dante Lam. A well-respected director in China made one of the biggest films of all time there. That new movie is called Bursting Point. That made $8 million. So you're looking at like, you know, um, eight films on the chart from China alone. Pretty cool. Renaissance, well, the Beyonce. May, you know, you look at Napoleon because everybody's like, oh, Napoleon dies in China. And right. Wonka melts in China. And then you, you know, what they're not saying is, well, you know, both of those films had about one-fifth the number of showings as the, the other six films in, in that, you know, that were out that week. All Chinese but given films. how low the demand was, I think that was just reflecting audience demand, not the fact that they're throttling back and not giving the movies a chance necessarily. Oh, well, you know, I think that's No, that's very- what you... Yeah, it's very nice well, of you to say if, so. Well, no, but if they if they gave them enough time to promote, if there's if you're saying, hey, they didn't get, I'm not sure about those two movies. We've been tracking. Hey, they only told them a week in advance your movie's opening up, and therefore you can't really promote it. Then that sort of hobbles the movie for sure. And then if you also cut their screen times and people are clamoring to get in, but there's no screen times, then yeah, they they could hobble the movie. But I didn't hear about those two movies not having enough lead time to properly promote them. But yeah, China throttles back on Hollywood movies. They have blackout periods. There was a time when they were allowing movies to open and they were doing well. But it feels like even when movies are given every opportunity, they're not delivering as much as they used to. 
Uh, but but uh, maybe that's not true. So keep an eye on that and let us know. Um, Beyonce, her film Renaissance made another seven million dollars. It's at thirty four million dollars and counting. Uh, at the same week, Taylor Swift is named Times Person of the Year. That's got to be annoying for Beyonce. The first entertainer, the first artist to ever be named Times Entertainer of the Year. So no Walt Disney, no Prince, no anybody. Taylor Swift is the first. That maybe wasn't the, the best call, but I, I, I don't care. But before you diss Renaissance, just remember Beyonce's had a number of concert films on streaming and in theaters. And this is her fourth or fifth or something like that. And it's also in the top 10 of all time grossing concert films. So this is a huge success. Don't paint it as anything but that. Unless, of course, you're in the audience and the person in front of you is dressed to the nines. The AMC theater chain had to put out guidelines saying, hey, if you have big headgear or wings, you know, be thoughtful about the people behind you and maybe take them off during the showing. Um, oh, moving down Saltburn is made at $13 million I saw that film starring Barry Keegan and directed and written by Emerald Fennel. I had reservations about her first film Promising Young Woman and I have even more reservations after seeing Saltburn which is a kinky spin on Brideshead Revisited. I liked him and some of the other actors but the film had a lot of problems and I think that's about all we've got, except your old boss, Nicolas Cage. Dream scenario is in theaters. Some people think it's the best movie of the year. Uh, it's at $6 million in counting. And John Waters named the Nicolas Cage film Bo is Afraid as literally the best film of the year. And if John Waters, I'm sure he's seen Saltburn, but if he hasn't, there is a scene in the bathtub that is so kinky and outrageous. I really think he would approve. So if he hasn't seen that yet, he should get going. But there are lots My of holiday. My old friend Nicholas Cage, mm-hmm. by the way, was at the Red Sea uh, Film Festival showing Dream Scenario. Oh, I'm sure he took you out for drinks. No, actually, he was surrounded by bodyguards. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, nice step boom. <laughs> yeah, I decided, you know, maybe, maybe we'll c- connect some other time. Uh, in limited release, Poor Things had a great opening on nine screens. Uh, there are lots of holiday movies playing in theaters. Die Hard made almost one million dollars this weekend movie theaters because it is a holiday movie. Gremlins is showing all over the place, including here in Birmingham, where Zach Galligan, the actor, the star of Gremlins, came to the screening that was here. He must be touring the country doing shows. God bless him. And uh, Death Whisper, this is a movie we hadn't tracked. It's in Thailand. It's called Tiyad, or in English, Death Whisper. It's, uh, it's grossed $13 million as of about December 5th. It's a horror film, really doing tremendously well and highlighted in Deadline's very good ongoing series of global breakouts, talking about TV shows and movies that are big hits in their territories and could cross over or just are notable because they're doing great in that country. So very cool to see what's happening in Thailand. Uh, if you've seen it, you already got the info. Let us know how it is. And IMAX Sperling, I thought this would be dear to your heart. What happened with IMAX? They hit $1 billion for the third time. That's right. They made a billion dollars just on IMAX screens worldwide in 2018. They did it again in 2019. And so now they've done it again in 2023. Box office is back. At least the premium format is back. Uh, they say 25% of their grosses are coming from local language movies. 
So that's very healthy to see. Uh, Oppenheimer and Avatar The Way of Water, a 2022 release, those were their top titles. But here's the really fascinating detail. Uh, Nine movies hit $1 billion worldwide in 2019. So they had a lot of big blockbusters to draw upon when hitting that $1 billion mark. This year, only two movies released in 2023 have grossed a billion dollars. And nonetheless, IMAX continues to hit $1 billion. Obviously, that means the box office isn't back yet, but when people go to the movies, they are spending up for a big premium event. And that's what the studios and really the theaters are all depending on, aren't they? They're, they've got all their money on the large premium formats. Well, when you see that some of these movies open and 49% of the gross or 42% of the gross is coming from premium screens, uh, what's called premium large format, sometimes they're not actually large screens, but they are, uh, you know, 4DX or Screen X, uh, you know, you kind of go, well, if that's where the money is, you know, everybody chases money. One one disaster film makes, uh, makes uh, money. Everybody starts making movies about volcanoes and earthquakes. Well, I don't know why people go see a movie in IMAX if it's not shot primarily in IMAX. I tend not to do that. The way I did it was stop making sense, so there are exceptions. But my nephew's boyfriend, or actually I should say my nephew's uh, fiance, they're now engaged to be married, he, went, he's, he likes to see big spectacles. He went to see Godzilla Minus One, and he went to see it in IMAX. He's like, well, I like, a big, I like to be immersed. I'm like, okay. Speaking of immersed, we have another specialty thing, and that's Fathom Events. They hit $93 million this year, or at least they're on track for that. There's just a few weeks left. And that's the best year in Fathom Events history. They're known, of course, for releasing or, or making available live opera, live theater, concerts, and they're now doing a little more in specialty releases like faith-based films. And they've always released classics like Die Hard and Elf on the holiday time or Casablanca, Mid-Year, things like that, Rocky, movies like that. They do that all the time. They're owned by AMC. And so you must be, you love to see them filling up screens with specialty stuff and keeping bums in the seat, don't you? Yeah, but I don't know. I'd have to double check. I thought that they were no longer owned by AMC. They were started by AMC. That's for sure. But I don't know that if, if they're still owned by AMC. I think that that story, uh, the story about them hitting $93 million said they were, but maybe they were wrong or maybe they were implying originally. Cause well, my it was quite, a joint venture. Uh, and, and so I'll, I'll look that up quickly, but what were you going to mention? Well, it only depends if AMC owns them. It just pisses me off that I'm an AMC member. They are owned by AMC, Cinemark and Regal. So it's a joint venture of those three companies. Yeah, it is. Okay. So all the theater chains own it, and yet they, if, even if you pay 20 or $25 to have a pass, they make you pay extra to go see Die Hard. Now, I get it for live opera or even, you know, even a replay of opera or Waitress the Musical or a TV show, The Chosen. It's new episodes and no one's seen them. Anything new and fresh, I get it. But no, 30, 40, well, you're showing Casablanca? You should not be charging members who have a pass extra five bucks extra just to go see that 40 year old movie that drives me nuts i really i really don't like that but i am i am also driven nuts by uh you know strikes i think they're important and people should do them but i love them when they're over and people get what they want and the strike for the actors is officially over the contract was approved by sag aftra 78 percent said yes so I don't have any historic record for how good that is. Clearly, you know, one out of five people said, I'm not happy with this. Turnout was 38%. Now they knew it was going to get passed, I guess. 
I can't imagine being a member of SAG-AFTRA and not voting. But maybe they were too busy being at the Red Sea International Film Festival, the third annual event in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Screenings were held at the Red Sea Mall, and the market was at the Ritz-Carlton. And you had a good time and introduced some movies and saw some films worth discussing, didn't you, Sperling? Yeah, I mean, they have a, a pretty vibrant uh, uh, competition. You know, so the films selected for competition, some have appeared in other films. Uh, festivals, some are Middle East debuts, some are premieres, and uh, there were some noteworthy films. What to me, what makes some of these films noteworthy? And I don't know how how you go from being an, an Uzbek filmmaker like uh, Shokir Kolakov, who made this film Sunday, and it's about an elderly Uzbek couple. They're in their remote farm, and they they're struggling with life in general. But then all of a sudden, the encroachment of modern life shows up, and it, it's got like four people in the film. It's got one location. It costs $30,000. This film is amazing. Mm-hmm. You'd think there's no way this film is going to be good, and this film could have appeared in Cannes and would have been lauded in Cannes. That's how good this film was. Uh, people Wonderful. came out of go, shaking their head going, how the hell did this? It, but how do you go from being that Uzbek filmmaker to bigger budgets? Uh, and, and it happens being, all over the world, countries. doesn't it? It happens all the yeah. time. Yeah. Did people scout out movies and they scout out talent? They say that actor, that film director, uh, maybe the, the next movie will have a big, bigger budget because it got good reviews and they'll make a more even a more polished film. And if they do it again, then someone will give them a chance to make a movie somewhere else. Or they're just keeping bigger budgets, you know. Well, and the Red Sea Foundation, uh, which runs the the festival, they also have a fund where they give uh, awards to different projects. Uh, And some of these projects uh, were in the the festival this year. Nora uh, is a Saudi film by Taufik al-Zaidi. It's about a young woman in a remote village during the 1980s when that was right when they did away with movie theaters. There was very strict Sharia law. In what country? In Saudi Arabia. Okay. Uh, And she strikes up a relationship, not a romantic relationship, but a very interesting kind of friendship uh, back and forth with a new school teacher who arrives. He arrives in this very remote, very tiny village because the government wants children to learn how to read, but not all children. Just boys. Mm. <laughs> so, well, of course, of course. Yeah. Yes. And, it, and, but, but now you'd think in, in a country, you know, you don't want to talk badly about the government, right? And yet they're allowing these movies to be made where, you know what, they're talking not necessarily positively about their, their own history. Uh, Do you think I guess it's going to be shown on television in Saudi Arabia or, you know, how accessible will it be? Uh, that to will the be in movie of- theaters. Nora, right, but I understand v- it's so expensive to go to a movie. Really, only the wealthy people are going to it, the upper middle class. Uh, you know, that's actually, well, it depends on the movie theater, but not entirely true. Uh, of course, there's 40 million people in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so it's the, you know, the same as, as uh, say, the state of California. Um, but that said, uh, when I was there, it, it was uh, the the festival was being held at the Vox at the Red Sea Mall, and half the movie theater was still open to the public, and there were people of all ages and all backgrounds going to see movies. Now, there are also some very high-end movie theaters. I mean, you know, $35, $40. That would be hard for me to go and pay for a movie. I, I wouldn't, but isn't that where they're going to be playing art house movies? They're not going to open wide with a Nora, this movie, are they? 
Uh, no, what they'll do is they'll actually open it in in Saudi. The question is, will it open in other places? I know that uh, the producers of that particular film would like to see it open in other in other places, and Nora is good enough to open elsewhere. By the way, so is the movie Hajan, which uh, a lot of people thought, oh God, it's just, you know, it's, it's for kids. Yes, it is basically like the Black Stallion with a camel instead, mm-hmm. of, a, instead of a horse. It's about a camel jockey. Uh, and it was perfectly fine. Uh, I know you like to talk about like what it was like to attend the festival. Well, you know how when we go to press screenings, they uh, no no cameras, no 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 phones. Put those away. Put them in this plastic bag. Lock it up. Put it in the locker. They're actually filming the screens at times. Some of the <laughs> some of the stuff. They're Hilarious. not the whole thing. Not the whole thing, but just like a little like, oh, here's a 30 second clip. I'm going to put it on my Instagram and show people that I went to the movies uh, or they'll come in. It's 45 minutes of the movie. They'll come in with a full thing of popcorn, sit down and start watching the movie. And uh, it's like, well, OK, I, I guess you missed <laughs> you missed the beginning. Um, <laughs> Is Hajan, does Hajan deal with any abuse? Because there's a, a long history of, of children in, in, as camel jockeys uh, in various countries uh, being abused or treated, mistreated poorly. Or is this just a heartwarming tale? Uh, it's, a, it, it's definitely a heartwarming tale, but it also definitely touches on abuse. It definitely mm-hmm. doesn't hide it. It doesn't, you know, but it doesn't like dwell on it either. You know, definitely shows like, yeah, this is not, this is not fun. This is not, you know, they're doing this because they have to. Mm-hmm. Um, a movie that actually may be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film from Jordan is Inshallah, a boy, which uh, is about a God woman, willing, meaning God willing, a boy. Inshallah, a boy. Right. Uh, a woman whose husband uh, suddenly dies and the husband's brother comes along and says, hey, you know, half the house is mine because you don't have a son. And so therefore, there's no lineage and and so again i was surprised like okay well i guess they're gonna allow a film like this to not only get made but uh, it's very critical of the judicial system and of the but society again, at large like in iran we see directors in iran making these films and they get out to the rest of the world but they're not always seen in iran so i'm i'm just you know i'm not going to pat them on the back unless i know they're getting a wide release and being seen by a broad section of the society in saudi arabia so maybe you can keep an eye on that and let us know hey actually it was a huge popular hit that would be great to know but you know let's not give them too much credit until we see what happens with these movies it's you know yeah. they get pressed to come from all over the world and look at these wonderful films we're showing but most people can't you know people can't afford to go to the high end theaters and the movies showing in the smaller theaters are not the movies that you're talking about necessarily so uh, let's keep an eye on it if we see a good story coming out that would be a movie that's questioning the government becoming a big hit that would be great Love to see it. Or a talent like Shokir Kolakov uh, crossing over. That would be awesome. The, you know, there were movies like The Teacher, which was in TIFF, by the way, and several other uh, festivals. It, when I saw it at TIFF, I thought, oh, a Palestinian school teacher, Israeli soldiers taken hostage. It was September. I thought, wow, that's really not painting the Israeli-Palestinian relationship in a, in a good light. It looks like it's really strained. And yeah, a month later, we found out just was, how strange. Was that news? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Did you need to have a movie to find out they're not doing well? That was not news in September. 
That's not been news for a hundred (laughs) years. So (laughs) good Lord. But uh, uh, Four Daughters, I thought you really wanted to talk about. That was one of the best documentary films you saw at the festival. Yes. And The Mother of All Lies. Those two films could be nominated for best documentary this year uh, for best documentary Oscar. Four Daughters is about, uh, it's, I think, Tunisian. Uh, The two daughters are uh, kind of, they go off and marry. uh, They join ISIS, basically. And it's about what what happens to that family after they join ISIS. Um, uh, Hiding Saddam Hussein. I had no idea why this guy was being shadowed by two bodyguards uh, when he came to introduce the film. There was the director and some guy standing next to him who wouldn't say a word. And all I could make out of of with my poor Arabic was he doesn't want to talk. And he had two bodyguards. I was like, what is this about? It was about the guy who hid Saddam Hussein. And it was a documentary. I thought it was like a narrative film. No, it was literally about the guy who hit him and how Saddam Hussein just showed up at his doorstep and he was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to hide you now. And then how over that 253 days, they actually became somewhat friendly and, you know, somewhat like family. Uh, fascinating documentary. I did, I did not think, I, you know, you could make a documentary that, that way of just a guy talking. It totally worked. It was really, really good. And there are success stories like Lionsgate came in and picked up a movie at the film festival. So the market was working. Well, I think they picked it up right before the film festival. Kill is this film by Nikhil Nagash Bhatt. It's an Indian film. Trust me, you will be talking about it when it comes time for box office. It's set entirely on a train. It is beyond violent. It is like when you look up violent in the dictionary, it goes, it, it, this is like the poster child for violent movies. Did, did you see the Brad Pitt film set on a train? Yes. Uh, totally different types of movies. Uh, mm-hmm. This is more a, you know, just pure violence. Well, it sounds like you saw some hits and you saw some films that could be up for award season. And it is award season, of course. And good news for Marty. My good old friend, Marty, the New York film critics named Killers of the Flower Moon the best picture of the year. Of course, they also gave it to the Irishman. The National Board of Review said Killers of the Flower Moon was the best picture and the best director and the best actress. The sort of runner up in that category was The Holdovers, which won best actor and best supporting actress and best original screenplay. And they have their top 10 of typical movies you would expect from the National Board of Review, all of which are Oscar hopefuls. The AFI also had their list of the best 10 films of the year. Uh, Both of those lists include Killers of the Flower Moon and The Holdovers, along with Barbie and Oppenheimer in May, December. The European Film Awards came out, and that was a big sweep. Anatomy of a Fall, a terrific French film from all I've heard, swept Best Picture, Director, Actress, and Screenplay. I know friends who saw it and loved it, but it ain't gonna win Best International Film at the Oscars because, like the LA film critics, they said the best film of the year is The Zone of Interest, which won Picture and Director, and uh, that is going to win the Best International Film. You can put your money down now. The LA film critics, like some others, went to non-gendered acting. So they said, okay, we're going to name a Best Actor and a Best Supporting Actor. It can be anybody of any type. We're going to name two people for each. It could be two men, two women, two transgender. We don't care. We're not going to worry about it. Non-binary. We're going to name two big performances and then two of the Best Supporting Performances. And this year, that resulted in four women. Their favorite for lead performances were Sandra Huller for Anatomy and The Zone of Interest. She can't lose. And Emma Stone for Poor Things. 
And best supporting were Rachel McAdams from Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, and Divine Joy Randolph for The Holdovers. So people worried about film festivals going to non-gendered roles. They're saying, all right, let's name the best performance you mean, of the you mean year. film awards. Film awards right. going to non-gendered. Performance, for film. performance. The non-gendered yeah. performance award. Yes, saying, just name the best performance of the year. Don't worry whether it's a guy or a girl or non-binary or whatever. They used to be, like, who cares? Who gave the best performance of the year? Who gave the best supporting performance? It's it's going to be okay. The Golden Globes certainly think it's going to be okay. They came out with their list and the 10 films. Uh, there you go. Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon, Barbie, The Holdovers, you, all the usual movies, The Zone of Interest, Anatomy of a Fall. You can look at the list in the thing. The question is, momentum? Do these movies have momentum? What do we know? None of these are from the guilds, right? No, I mean, when you look at it, uh, let me just go, Universal Pictures, Oppenheimer, okay. Killers of the Flower Moon, technically Apple Paramount Pictures is from one of the guilds. Maestro, I guess technically also from one of the guilds. Past Lives, great movie. What, what do you mean it. one of the guilds? What, from one of the guilds? The, it's, it's, you're looking at the Golden Globe nominations. Yes. So they're not from the guilds. The guilds oh, are oh, the okay. side. Never mind. I thought you were saying, did these get produced by... People that were guilded, for no for the ten films for the ten films named by the Golden Globes they do drama and then they do musical or comedy four of the ten are from streamers Air Killers of the Flower Moon Maestro and May December so you've got Apple Netflix and uh, is there an Amazon in there A- Amazon MGM Studios Air yes Air Air is Am- is Amazon so. of the Best Picture nominees are from streamers. So that is certainly a new world. That that is over. Nobody cares anymore. Maestro could win Best Picture. Killers of the Flower Moon could win. Oppenheimer and Barbie do not have an advantage just because they're from studios. I don't think people care anymore. So that has certainly changed. But in terms of all these awards, none of them are votes from people who actually vote on the Academy Awards. So none of them matter in terms of momentum. At best, People will say, you know, I didn't go want to watch the Marty movie, but everybody's naming it. I guess I better go see that movie. That's the most you can hope for from all these awards. Yeah, I mean, I thought you, my head is so still in strike mode. I thought you were talking about which guild, you know, how did they make the movie and get it uh, seen by people when they couldn't go and promote it? And yeah, no, you're right. Uh, I completely agree with you. The, pe- the guilds vote for the Oscars, not the guilds themselves, but the, the members of the guilds vote for the Oscars. Therefore, the actors, the directors, the writers, yeah. right. And all these awards are from people who are not actors, directors, and writers. They're schmucks like me. The Globes, though, actually by has a way, better track. By the way, the Globes does not have a, a host for their telecast in January. They have Ooh. been turned down by just about everyone. And all I can say is, Michael, you and I we are available. We are available, and much like Shohei Otani, the American, well, the Japanese baseball player who just got paid $700 million over 10 years, he is deferring most of his, most of the money. He's only going to take $2 million a year. He's getting $20 million over 10 years and $680 million over the following 10 years. Yes. So Michael and I will do the same. We will only take... The, the, the small amount of money now, $2 million, right? I mean, a cool $2 million will work for us, right, Michael? And then we'll take the, sure. 700, the rest of it, yeah, later. So we're available. We gave you those Good ways to, to contact us. 
Yeah. So the Globes have a better track record of TV shows, though I think their list this year is a little a little boring, a little more obvious, I guess. I mean, 1923, The Crown did not have a good last season, but it's on here. But shows like and The Morning Show, I'm surprised by the interest in that. But they had The Last of Us and Succession and The Diplomat. And then when you look at comedy and musical, The Bear, Ted Lasso, Abbott Elementary, Jury Duty, Only Murders in the Building, and Barry. Again, I don't think like Ted Lasso had a great last season, but I guess they wanted to say goodbye. But it's interesting, you know, when speaking of television, uh, it's just uh, that is where they can have more of an influence, at least in terms of getting people to watch. So we'll see after how they do. But they do have two silly categories. They have two new globe categories. One makes sense. It's best performance in stand-up comedy or TV. And that's, that makes sense. Stand-up comedy specials are their own thing. And finally now they're like, you know what? We should give a Golden Globe for that. So you got their one-time host, Ricky Gervais, is up. Trevor Noah, Chris Rock, Amy Schumer, Sarah Silverman, Wanda Sykes. I don't know if their specials are the six best specials of the year. But I do know that that's a reasonable, good category that the Emmys should adapt uh, right now. But their other one, the Oscars tried. Best Cinematic and Box Office Achievement. Give us the hits. <laughs> Give us hits. Barbie, Guardians of the Galaxy, John Wick, Mission Impossible, Oppenheimer, Spider-Man, the Super Mario Brothers, Taylor Swift. They're going to give an award to one of those movies. And somebody said, Barbie, clear off your shelf. And I go, I don't know. If I was going to name the biggest box office achievement of the year, Barbie's right up there, the highest grossing movie of all time by a female director. But I think that or Taylor Swift, the heiress tour, Close to the highest grossing concert film of all time. A true phenomenon. If you were going to nominate a movie that was the biggest breakout in so many ways and really blazed a path, I think I might pick Taylor Swift. Plus, I mean, that way you get uh, Taylor Swift times person of the year to show up at your awards ceremony, which is why they actually created this category because then they can get the stars for all of these hit movies to walk their red carpet. Yeah, they didn't nominate Ferrari or Napoleon. Ferrari is like Golden Globe's catnip, international stars, international topic. So if I, I just said Golden Globes don't matter for momentum, but boy, uh, ignoring those two movies says something uh, when the Golden Globes is created really to highlight movies like that. So that means you're not having a good day, that's for sure. Uh, neither is Sean Combs. Uh, the one-time music mogul, four different women have come forward now to say that he sexually harassed, assaulted, and or raped them. And he's now facing a business fallout. And of course, they will all have their day in court. But when four p different people come together, uh, I don't need to wait for any trial. That's a person I don't want to have anything to do with. But I do want to have something to do with Big Deal and Big Whoop. Well, Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment and we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Rocking around the Christmas tree, it's a happy holiday. I, I think you have to stop there, otherwise we're going to have to pay uh, Brenda Lee. So, Fair enough. And she was 13, actually, when she recorded that. And 13-year-old and, uh, Brenda Lee has now topped the Billboard Hot 100 with her holiday perennial rocking around the Christmas tree that you were just singing there. Uh, mind you, she's 78 now. Okay, but hey, number one is number one, so it's kind of <laughs> nice. We're sure the self-styled queen of Christmas, Mariah Carey, is congratulatory. Yeah. She sent flowers, uh, actually. She did? Yep. No. Are you I serious? Found out, yeah. Sure, why not? Oh. Of course. It's the 65th anniversary of the song's chart debut, and her label gave it a big push if a pretty inexpensive looking video and some press releases counts as a big push, then yeah. Hey, they got the word out, and it 
kind of worked, okay? It's number one. That makes Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree only the third Christmas song in the history of the Billboard Hot 100 to make it to number one. The other two, you should sit down for this because I, I think a lot of people are going to be like, what? Justin Bieber with Mistletoe. I'm, a, I'm a excited. Hey, he was the hot. It's a great song. It's a great holiday song. I'm Unbelievable. a, a listening to that song. And of course, more I carry, all I want for Christmas is you. Watch out, bitches. Cher has her first Christmas album in the song DJ Play Me a Christmas Song Means Business. It's coming out for you. <laughs> big dealer, big whoop. It's actually a good record, too. That song is good, and there's two or three other quite good songs on her album. It's a solid, solid Christmas album from Cher, way along. If you're wondering, only three? What about Bing We're looking only from 1958 forward, and the golden era for Christmas songs came before 1958, actually. So I went through the old charts. There was no Hot 100, and there was no consensus chart. But when you look at the two or three different charts from the 30s to the 58, and you see what was dominating on two or three or all of them, you can be pretty safe to say that there were probably five other songs that hit number one or the equivalent Come holiday time, you know, holiday songs. That's Spike Jones. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. Gene Autry with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Jimmy Boyd with Norman Luboff singing I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. The Chipmunks with Dave Seville and the Chipmunks song, Alvin! And of course, Bing Crosby and White Christmas. Probably the best-selling song of all time. And a song that was so popular, it has disappeared forever. What? Really? <laughs> well, actually, Bing Crosby recorded White Christmas, and it was an unbelievably popular song, and it ended up reappearing on the charts year after year. And the original master that they cut, the physical thing that they would stamp out records, simply wore down to nothing. Nobody thought about making a copy and then using the copy or doing anything like that and saving it because nothing was ever that popular before. They literally wore it out. And so two years later, he had to record the song again, made it basically the same arrangement, did everything the same, but it is no longer that original version that has disappeared into time and it's lost forever. And so what we're hearing is the second recording by Bing Crosby of White Christmas. Kind of cool. I wonder if somebody can find a record of it and then digitize it. Well, uh, they would have done that for the quality of it and done it, I think, yeah. already. But, you know, if yeah. you got it, send it in and we'll keep it. <laughs> hey, remember cable TV, Michael? Remember that? I do. Yeah, you could buy a bunch of different channels for one reasonable price. You know, cable channels got a chance to grab eyeballs since it was so easy for people to check you out. You know, if, if they heard about, say, Iron Chef, lo and behold, they found out they already had access to the Food Network. And then when Mad Men got great reviews, they could flip over to AMC, that competitor to TCM, not the actual movie theater that I thought it was. So when I went to the <laughs> movie theater and asked for Mad Men, they had no idea what I was talking about. Well, now <laughs> streamers think this is a great idea. This whole idea of like putting many channels together. Verizon just offered a bundle of Netflix and HBO Max with ads for just $10 a month. Huh, huh go figure. And now Apple and Paramount are having talks and think there is strength in numbers. Huh. I think bundling is the new black. Big dealer, big whoop. You've been saying this for years, haven't you? Yeah. It's like, uh, just make it cheaper. That's, nobody wants to spend $200 a month on television. Right. There was nothing wrong with cable except the price. And now there's nothing wrong with eight or 10 streaming channels except... 
You don't get as much as you got with cable, and they're more expensive. <laughs> but they're still working at it. Peacock hit 30 million subscribers, and it only lost $2.8 billion in 2023. They said they're going to lose even less next year, so good for them. Uh, the co-CEOs of Netflix are getting $40 million each in compensation for 2024, so a little, a little belt tightening, I guess, at Netflix. Uh, Disney is licensing shows, licensing shows to Netflix. Warner Brothers is licensing shows to Tubi. Everybody's realizing exclusivity, not so important for every single damn show we own, and we want a new revenue stream. So here's they're, what they're all here's like, what they've realized. Hey, remember when we made a movie and we put it in theaters and we like milked that and then we put it on premium cable like pay cable like HBO and then we milked that and then we sold it on DVDs and we milked that and then we put it on bro- they're like oh we kind of shrunk all those down to one big giant payment called Street. this doesn't work actually we screwed ourselves and it does for some people it works for Netflix and they have no interest in making tons of money from theatrical releases they are also not in the live sports business. Every week, you people ask us every quarter, are we going to get into sports? No, we are not. No, no, except when we do. They did live stream that, <laughs> that, that auto racing event that we talked about in Las Vegas, and now they're doing it again. They're hosting another live sports event, a one-off thing. It's a tennis event with Rafael Nadal and Carlos Alcaraz. It's going to be in March in Las Vegas, and it's called Tennis Slam. Clever. Uh, so they're going to do it again. So clearly, they like these one-off things. It helps promote some shows connected to them, and they just like doing it. But clearly, they're starting to learn. Eh, maybe we can do this now. You know, streaming is kind of a mature business now, as you probably mm-hmm. know, Michael. And when you're a mature business, you can make money in two ways, or or really make that three ways, Michael. I mean, one, you can actually make money of any kind. In any currency, we'll take, we'll take anything. Jelly beans, we'll take jelly beans. Just, well, okay, in all seriousness, you can raise your prices. That would be the first way. Or you can cut expenses. Or if you're the music streaming company, Spotify, you can do both of those last two options. Shortly after raising prices in North America for the first time in many years, Spotify is firing about 17% of its entire worldwide employees. So about 1,500 people will be unemployed out of the current 9,000 folks working for them around the globe. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal, especially for the people losing their job. And let's remember that in this year, they fired now 2,300 people. In January, they fired 600 people. In June, 200. And now another 1,500 people are gone. Uh, and there's more to come, said their uh, chief financial officer. So more than 22% of everybody working at Spotify at the end of 2022 has lost their job. Now, by the way, they added 2,400 people in that year. So they hired 2,400 people in 2022, and they have now fired 2,300 people the following year. So that shows somebody's not doing their job at all, right? I mean, you hire 2,300 people and then you fire them one year later. This is not like they hired people in entirely new areas and then got rid of the old area. It's not a shedding of an old business. It's just incompetence of hiring too many people too fast that you clearly did not need or could not afford. You know, it would be nice to be profitable. By the way, there is another way to save money. You know, if you want to increase your, your, your profits, you could slash the massive pay packages for the CEO and top executives. 
Uh, Daniel Ek doesn't even have a salary. Though, by the way, if you're wondering, two years ago, he tried to buy the football team Arsenal for $1.8 billion. Uh, so, you know, he's got some stock options, I think. And other top execs at this company, which has lost money, uh, they make 10 to $20 million a year. So there you go. Well, cancel culture strikes again, or should we say renewal culture? Because if someone is making you money, most businesses are not going to cancel you, no matter what you do. See, Bill Cosby. The latest is <laughs> Jeremy Clark Clarkson. Uh, now, he is the one-time host of Top Gear. We've talked about him before. His vile comments about Meghan Markle in print were so shocking, Clarkson received universal condemnation. We talked about that as well. But Clarkson also has an unexpected hit with Clarkson's Farm, a reality show where Clarkson works his own farm and realizes how bloody challenging it is. Apparently, being a farmer, not easy. It's nope. Amazon's number one show in the United Kingdom. They'd already filmed season three when Clarkson slurred Markle in a manner that would even make a frat boy say, dude, that's pretty harsh. After <laughs> long consideration and hoping no one will remember what happened, Amazon finally admitted the obvious. They're going to air season three and renew the, season, the show for season four with filming about to begin. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Sadly, it's a big whoop, but we've been here before. Jeremy Clarkson has made lots of comments that sparked outrage, racist, obnoxious comments over the years, especially when he was hosting the car show Top Gear for the BBC. He also made that one of the most popular shows in the world. So they weathered storm after storm. It was only when he physically assaulted a person working on the show that they were like, I guess we should do something. And then Amazon quickly snapped him up for a similar show called The Grand Tour. Top Gear is still going on, uh, but they've had multiple accidents. Some Someone almost just died, one of their hosts, and they've paused the show, but you know they'll bring it back because there's money to be made. By the way, I don't know if Bill Cosby is a great example. Uh, people barely even show that show in reruns, and there's no reason to not celebrate the Cosby show. It's a great show that had a great impact, and whatever Bill Cosby did in his private life, we know he was a horrible person. Uh, that does, shouldn't, it may impact your personal enjoyment of the show, but there's nothing wrong with you uh, seeing that show and using that show because it's a good show. And a lot of other people. No, I was talking about that, that the fact that in the '80s people knew that was going on, and yet they turned a blind eye. Well, I don't think they did. Who the hell knew it was going on? Oh, Nobody. I, I didn't know. It wasn't an open secret, as far as I know. No, not that I know of. You know, it is an open secret, though, is that the performing rights group BMI has switched to a for-profit model, which we talked about last week, and they were snapped up by a private equity group. But will the deal be approved by the Biden administration? That's a big question. And an analysis of, uh, by Daniel Tenser of Music Business Worldwide. We talk about that, that website all the time. Uh, he raises a lot of points worth considering. First, Google has been trying to get into the publishing side for years, and it owns a passive stake in BMI. Why is this eyebrow-raising, you may be asking? Well, that's because Google also owns YouTube, one of the chief outlets that must fork over fees to, you guessed it, BMI. And they have long been criticized for paying, you know, way too little. Now they'll have a say in paying themselves. In a completely unrelated move, before being sold, BMI announced it was reducing the amount of money it pays out to songwriters, lowering the percentage from 90% of the monies that come in to 85%. That's a 5% haircut. That was, of course, to make the business more appealing to investors. Oh, BMI, by the way, did announce it was generously handing out $100 million to songwriters as a bonus for the sale. 
But of course, $100 million is pretty much exactly what BMI saved by reducing the cut from 90% to 85%. So in other words, they took money songwriters were owed, kept it, and this one year for one time only acted like Santa Claus by giving it back to them anyway. Next year, of course, they will be handing out coal. <laughs> big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's, a, it's a big deal. Whether this goes through, we'll have to see. And, and Google's uh, conflict of interest is notable. That may put a kink in the proceedings. BMI, of course, was formed as a competitor to ASCAP. It was formed by radio broadcasters who hated paying money to ASCAP. So they created a, 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 an alternate group that would charge less money. So they'd have to pay less for performing rights. So it's in high, entire history is based on trying to lower the amount you pay out to songwriters. And yet over the years, they've done a good job from that unpleasant beginning. And now, of course, it may be fading away. Now, I like this. I don't know. I, <laughs> I think this is episode is, I think this is cool. Last episode, we were, last episode, I wouldn't say last week, Sperling, because it's been two weeks, but last episode, we reported on how London said thanks, but no thanks to building the sphere, that elaborate concert venue in Las Vegas where U2 is performing, uh, built by MSG, Madison Square Gardens. And London said, no, we do not want one of those in London. And MSG sniffed and said, fine, there are plenty of other cities who think we're cool, but. Now, the conservative government in the UK has stepped in to say, hold on, mate. They may reject London's rejection of the sphere, which the city felt was too cheek by jowl with businesses and residences that would be adversely impacted by its elaborate light show of a facade. Plus, it's ecologically irresponsible, a guzzle of electricity, and considered by many to be a bad idea. So what, said the conservative government? It's having another look. At the same time, MSG announced that the Sphere so far has generated $75 million in grosses from both U2's debut concerts and the nature film directed by Darren Aronofsky specifically for the venue. So it costs like $2 billion, $200 million. So that's $75 million down and $2 billion, $125 million to go. Do you think this is a big deal or a big whoop that the government is stepping in? Uh, I think it's a big whoop, and here's why. This is the kind of negotiation that always goes on when you have a developer that wants to make something in in any city, and there's lots of back and forth, and and you know, you know, ways of saying, oh, we're not going to allow you to do it. Oh, but we will allow you to do it if you just make these concessions. Uh, and so, but that the city is, city wasn't looking to to argue more. They said no. They weren't looking to compromise and say, well, we want more concessions. They just don't want it. It's the government, the federal government, that's stepping in and saying, well, we want it to be built there anyway, even if London rejects it. So it's not a negotiating ploy. It's the right-wing government of the federal government stepping in to out, you know, Bigfoot, the liberal leader of London. Yeah, I think, uh, it, you know, it's still a long way from being approved. So, you know, when it finally is approved, give me a call. All right. Well, here's the interesting thing. 75 million grossed at the Sphere. Guess what? Most of that came from the film. U2 has grossed $30 million, but that nature film, which apparently looks really cool, that has generated $45 million. I did not see that coming. But of course, you got like tons of screenings of the movie because during the day, you know, there are very few concerts, but all day long you can screen the film. I, I'd like to go check that out. And I do have another friend who attended one of U2 shows at the Sphere, and they said it was dazzling. Unlike my friend Mike in Minnesota, they weren't even stoned. 
<laughs> and they said <laughs> folks backstage who are in the know made clear, you know, they had VIP access and all that. They made clear we haven't even used 10% of what this venue is capable of in terms of audio and video. You, know, you can target audio to specific seats. There's so much stuff, you know, it's the first show and it was so new. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that could happen here that we haven't seen yet. Nonetheless, they did feel like the sphere is a cool one-off space rather than the future of concert going. But oh, the yeah, future of concert absolutely. Go- the fe- well, the MSG disagrees. They want to build, you know, tons of them all over the world. But I think the future of concert going is avatars like the ABBA show, which I still haven't seen. And guess what? Kiss, their classic rock band, they performed their final show ever. In, I think they were out of makeup, but they did their final show. The lights came down and then up, it came up again into a surprise for everyone. They debuted avatars of Kiss, a la ABBA, that they're hoping to take on the road. So those music avatars, they're not done yet. You know, you always say, oh, God, everybody lives in your neighborhood. But uh, mm-hmm. Gene yeah. Simmons, this isn't <laughs> my neighborhood. Uh, when I first moved to L.A., I had a post office box in Beverly Hills because my goal was to, like, try and move closer to my post office box. And uh, <laughs> it worked. But the person, I didn't know who this person was. He kept, he had this big giant post office box underneath mine. I was like, what is this big giant box? And he keeps getting like all this stuff. And I see him like when I go in and he's just like sorting through it over in the corner. And somebody one day went up to him and said, hey man, can I get an autograph? I really love your stuff. And I was like, who the heck is that? And I looked at him and I looked, I couldn't figure out who it was. It was Gene Simmons. I eventually figured it out. Hilarious. <laughs> if he'd stuck case, out his tongue, if he'd stuck out of his tongue, you would have known. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, my, Michael, we talk about this kind of stuff all the time because if have you ever bought a digital download or a movie or a TV show or an album or a book? I know I have. I have. Yeah, well, chances are, by the way, you have via Amazon or Apple or Walmart or, you know, whatever, whoever's selling them. And if you own a Sony PlayStation, you know you can also purchase movies and TV shows via that gaming device to download. Same thing with Xbox, by the way. But in fact, you have never bought a digital copy of an album or a movie or a TV show or a game, for that matter. You've only licensed them or rented them, if that's easier to understand. And those downloads can be changed or deleted at any time. That's the rude awakening for customers who purchase Discovery TV shows via their PlayStation. People could buy episodes of, say, Cake Boss and Mythbusters and Deadliest Catch and 1,200 other titles. But now Sony is telling them that Warner Brothers Discovery is taking them back. So all that, cons- you know, all that content that you purchased, it'll disappear on December 31st. It happened last year in Austria and Germany, and now it's happening again here. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? It's a big whoop, and it will be a big deal if somebody takes this to court and gets to the Supreme Court, and we get a ruling that says, no, uh, we don't care what your licensing agreement says. When somebody buys a book, whether it's digital or physical, they should have all the rights that they had to that book, and you can't just take it back. It's outrageous. Of course, Warner Brothers Discovery wants people to subscribe to HBO Max. You know, so they're like, well, let's yeah. get rid of those things. So like make those all disappear. Maybe they'll spend 10 bucks a month. That's that makes it even worse in a way. It's not even like some rights. Dis- they're just like, yeah, screw you that you bought that. And we made money off of that. We want you to have to pay again forever to access those shows. So that's infuriating. Customers, of course, expect refunds. Sony's like, 
Don't ask us for the money, and they wouldn't even comment. When well, the, when I think uh, you could pretty much guarantee a class action lo- lawsuit at some point that will probably be settled. It would be nice if actually Congress did something once in a while, at least in this country, and maybe made a law that you can't do this. Well, the, we had the Bruce wasn't wasn't there an estate of some celeb who had paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars for music, and then their kids couldn't access it, and iTunes it was, was like Bruce Sorry. Willis. It was Bruce Willis, uh, but he's and, not and, dead. And, no, 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 it's not that his estate, he, he was already upset that he couldn't, you know, give the music give, to his, to his kids. What happened with that? Yeah, no, we've been trying yeah, for years. He had, he had bigger issues. Uh, well, that's, I think that's a whole. different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know what? That wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week. It moves us along into Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Now, if you're looking to buy a major TV network like, you know, Michael, sometimes you and I are, well, you got to keep looking because Disney's Bob Iger says ABC is not for sale. Absolutely not. No. At a town hall meeting, Iger discussed all sorts of stuff, except, you know, the, you know all that grotesque amount of money that he gets paid. Uh, that question was pretty much ignored entirely because, you know, he says he's still counting. The votes aren't in yet. Uh, so let's dig in because Disney used to dominate the box office at 40% of the box office. And now it's just one long tale of woe theatrically. Uh, did that force Bob Iger to keep it simple and sweet? Uh, no, it did not. So where do you want to begin, Mike? You want to talk about the Marvels? You want to talk about sure. ABC? You want to talk about Let's, linear TV, which can, can it be profitable? And do you want to talk about buying stuff? Because, you know, he likes to buy stuff. He bought Marvel. He bought Lucasfilm. He's, you know, merging things and breaking things apart. What do you want to talk about first? Well, let's talk about the Marvels. This film will be the lowest grossing film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to date. But of course, there have been 33 films. So it happens. Who to blame? Not Bob Iger. How about director Nia DaCosta? He says one reason the movie didn't deliver is because the suits weren't all over the set, paying attention and keeping an eye on things. How obnoxious. So who's to blame for Wish, Bob? Uh, that, he really, you know, threw her under the bus, and that was really unpleasant to see. I don't know if you... It's like you're at a town hall, trashing a director of one of your movies just doesn't seem a good thing. Well, okay, then, uh, you know, if, if not the Marvels, then uh, wh- what do you have to say about, say, ABC? Because I know that that was like, you know, it's a big topic for Disney these days. Well, they kept saying ABC is not for sale. Neither are their cable channels. And he blamed the media. Again, it's not his fault. He blamed media coverage of an interview he gave in July. Even though since then, he has often done other things to make clear basic cable and ABC are not that important. When Disney listed the four pillars of the company that are key to Disney's future, linear TV was notably absent. And you pointed that out at the time. You're like, where's ABC, right? Yeah. I mean, I was like, okay, so uh, theme parks. Okay. Oh, movies. That's good, too. Uh, and, 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 you know, oh, experience. Okay. Wait. Um, you know, you have like ABC News and ABC and all, ESPN. Was one of them, but like not ABC. Yeah. And he did say linear TV can be profitable. Now he said they did an quote, incredibly rigorous internal review of linear TV and believe it could be run more efficiently. And now it is run more efficiently, which I guess means they fired people, but it's not for sale. I'm like, you did an incredibly rigorous review of television. Like, we know ABC's been around for a while. Aren't you sort of familiar with it? You know, it's like, yes, it's expensive. It makes money. It's declining. But 
It's still a mature, profitable business. So I don't know why that would be uh, why that would be news to him, or why they had to do an incredibly rigorous review of a channel that they have owned for you know how many decades. But anyway, the best quote he gave, the most honest quote. Uh, was when he said buying stuff is fun. He said, quote, I can tell you that building is a lot more fun than fixing. <laughs> he also made an obnoxious comment. He was basically dissing everything that was made before he came back into power. He said, you know, we have to entertain first. It's not about messages. So he seemed to be sort of catering to the right wing, oh, you're too woke thing. So like why that would be a thing he'd want to do. But he said, at a, he said that at a public media event, the Deal Book Summit, and he said... Putting the message first happened while he was gone. And so like, well, what's an example of, you know, a good entertaining movie? He's like, well, Black Panther. (laughs) Black Panther is all about the message. The whole thing about the Black Panther was the fact that it existed. The comic book, the movie, the sequel is all about a message. Everything about it is, and he said, yeah, but it's more important than entertain. It's like, no, that's a terrible example because in its DNA, is a message. So I think he can't even give a good example of, I mean, when was Disney too woke? I don't think anything was made in the last two years where they were all woke. And uh, what I thought was craziest was his comment about uh, when he talked about, you know, maybe ABC, maybe that's not our future. He said, well, he was just riffing. He said, you know, quote, sometimes when I'm looking for a reaction to my own thought process, I like to test that process in public particularly in ways that I might be able to get a reaction from the investment community. So my thought was at the time that I would essentially be public with that thought process. Floating the scenario, therefore, of selling ABC was a means of me saying to Wall Street or the investment community that our heads were not in the sand about the challenges those businesses were having. I did not want to get accused of being kind of an old media executive. You don't riff. You don't riff in public. (laughs) Can we just pause here? Uh, Yeah. I know he and Elon Musk had a bit of a tiff during that deal book <laughs> summit. Okay. Uh, but I will also say that what, what Bob Iger just described is referred to as market manipulation. You can't <laughs> do that. I mean, Elon Musk has gotten into trouble for tweeting stuff like, Hey, I'm going to take, uh, you know, I'm going to take uh, Tesla private. And, and, you know, he got in a lot of trouble for that because of course that sent the stock skyrocketing. So when you have, when you're saying like, I, I might sell ABC and uh, some of my stock as soon as the stock uh, goes up after I say that. Yeah. And you don't riff. You know, like, you don't, yeah. you know, I wonder what about this? Like you're head of a massive multinational corporation. And he said he didn't want to look uncool. Really? That's why you said you were worried they might think you were uncool if you didn't recognize, oh, ABC's dead. It's like, that's insane. I really think that's insane. By the way, CNBC is not a private chat room. It's not a text no, message. No, no. As a matter of fact, I, you know, I can see when they're chatting. I can see it. It's remarkable. <laughs> I can see it. I guess that's what happens when you're, you know, on television. I found it remarkable, a a, a dim-witted, ridiculous, I I really thought it was absurd, uh, almost everything he said. Uh, And by the way, he's fired 8,000 people, but that's only about 3% out of 225,000 people. So, you know, there's a lot of people who work for Disney. Uh, I thought his uh, performance was poor to say the least. I, I thought it was bizarre that you would be worried about seeing as uncool and that you would just, well, I'm just riffing in public. Forget stock, even take him at wonder, his word. Lord. Do you think he's like, oh, why did I come back? Well, he did say, I can tell you building is a lot more fun than fixing. He's like, that's right. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, moving into a new house is, yeah, it's a lot of fun. 10 years later, when everything starts falling apart, you've got to pick up a hammer. Not as much fun anymore. This is where Sperling tells you, if you're bored and you're done with the show, you can leave now because it's just going to be Michael talking about dead people. <laughs> you know, I, I have to say, I always said that Michael looked a lot like Haley Joel Osment, and he really does see dead people all the time, <laughs> everywhere. And even when I'm 12 hours ahead of him, I tried to get back in time so that I could put in some of these uh, obituaries like uh, like Norman Lear. Nope, that was already there. I was like, wait, did he like just have that in it from week to week, just knowing at some waiting, point it was going to be waiting. correct? <laughs> do, you, do you think um, we should get stats on how many people click off right about now? They're like, oh, it's the obits. Okay, yeah. I can go. <laughs> <laughs> it's been two weeks, so there's quite a few people, starting with Ryan O'Neill. Uh, actor Ryan O'Neill was good-looking and wonderful in breezy comedy, so, of course, his talent was overlooked. Sure, he was a star for a while, but was he really good? Yes, actually, he was, though clearly born in the wrong era. Plus, most of his great work came within a few short years. He shot to fame in the TV show Peyton Place, and then the blockbuster love story in 1970 turned him into a bona fide box office draw. Then he made two stone-cold classics with director Peter Bogdanovich, What's Up Doc with Barbara Streisand, and Paper Moon with his daughter Tatum. Finally, director Stanley Kubrick cast O'Neill in Barry Lyndon in 1975. That was about it. So in recent years, he had a recurring role on Bones, but other than a 30-year on-and-off romance with Farrah Fawcett, which only ended with her death, that was about it for greatness. And remember, it was mocked now, Love Story, but it received seven Oscar nominations. So, you know, this movie was well... Roger Ebert gave it four stars. Maybe he regretted it later, but this movie was, you know, easy to make fun of after it became such a big hit. But the book, too, also got some good reviews, even though by now, uh, neither one has really stood the test of time, unlike his other movies, Paper Moon, What's Up, Doc? Those are great. And also, in a sad context, he, he was physically abusive of his children and lovers, as well as having addiction issues. But that isn't why Hollywood got grew cold on him. I think he just lacked the skill of picking good projects. That was never a problem for actor Ellen Holly. She didn't have projects to pick. She died at 92, and she is a light-skinned actress who broke down a big barrier in TV. That's no surprise. This Manhattan-born woman had among her relatives the first woman to get a doctor's degree in New York City, the first female black principal in New York City, and the first black woman to serve in the cabinet of a mayor. She was fated to break down barriers. She starred on Broadway, got good reviews, but she couldn't get any work. Why? Because she was light-skinned. Producers wanted her to play white characters because she wasn't quote-unquote black enough for a black woman and didn't read as black. But passing as white was precisely what she wouldn't do in real life, so why do it in acting? Frustrated, ready to quit the business, she wrote a six-page letter to the New York Times. They took it, turned it into an op-ed in 1968. She really was about to quit, but they ran this op-ed saying like, how black do I have to be? complaining about this situation, and Agnes Nixon, a legendary figure in daytime television, saw it and immediately cast Ellen Holly in a major role on the soap opera One Life to Live. The character? A black woman passing as white. <laughs> but it was okay. She had input into the role at every stage. She became the first black star of a daytime TV show, and the storyline was a huge hit. She stayed there for 12 years, but grew frustrated with poor pay and poor storylines and quit. They brought her back. She quit again. Uh, she had an affair with Harry Belafonte. 
The cool thing about this is that people didn't know her character was a black woman passing his way. She was on the show for five months and audiences, of course, assumed she was a white person. She was engaged to a white doctor. And then this white woman, as far as people knew, got attracted to a black intern studying to become a doctor. When they kissed, an interracial kiss, as far as most people knew, everybody freaked out. The show got hate mail. A Texas TV station refused to air it and they dropped One Life to Live completely. Then... Everything happens on a Friday and a Monday in a soap. On a Friday episode, her character's walking down the hall of the hospital, bumps into a dark-skinned black woman who's running housekeeping. And the woman says, Clara. And she said, Mama. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> That's how everybody found out. So I thought that was very, very interesting. There's more in her story in the New York Times obit. Photographer Elliot Erwitt died at 95. He's great. He shot everybody. But I love him, and I discovered him because of an album cover for the band Fairground Attraction. A wonderful album. It's their debut album. Check it out. Uh, it's, we've got the picture in our show notes, and you can see the original photo that he took. But The First of a Million Kisses is a lovely album, and that's how I met. Elliot Erwin. Aunt Frances Sternhagen died at 93. You know her, right? She was on Cheers. She was on Closer. Oh, yeah. She was on ER. She had a great career, stage and television. She played everybody's mother and grandmother on TV. Uh, Cliff's mother on Cheers, the grandmother of Noah Wiley on ER, Kira Sedwick's mom on The Closer. Uh, but her greatest achievements were on the stage. She uh, debuted opposite Helen Hayes and Mary Martin and never looked back. She did the original role of On Golden Pond, and she did the original uh, Olympia Dukakis role in Steel Magnolias. So uh, quite a talent. And I saw her on stage in The Heiress with Cherry Jones, and she was great in that. And TV legend Norman Lear died at 101. Wow. Uh, great career. You've Taken heard all about soon. him. Yeah, exactly. He'd like that joke, I think. Yeah, no, but some of the analysis has been interesting. One, We know about Archie Bunker and race and issues of the day, but some people have pointed out, and of course, uh, pioneering and portraying black families on television, Good Times, and then Sanford and Son, and most importantly, the Jeffersons. Long before the Cosby Show, there were the Jeffersons, an upper, upwardly mobile two-parent family uh, on the Upper East Side of New York. A lot of fun television, all basically within the 70s, along with Mary Mary Hartman. Mary Hartman, that's a fun show. But middle-aged women. He had a lot of middle-aged women, not babes, attractive women at times, but, you know, regular women wearing regular clothes in prime time. Maude, Isabel Sanford, uh, One Day at a Time with Bonnie Franklin, who, who was, you know, a divorced woman. But middle-aged women given voice and given great roles and being able to be sexual and intelligent beings doing things in their lives and accepted as such and shown for their importance. That was a big thing that Norman Lear did. I, I thought that was very interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, but he's so big that all the broadcast networks posted a title card in prime time. They all did it at the same time at eight o'clock, just Norman Lear, you know, the birth and death dates and just a tribute to him, a quick little nod of the hat to Norman Lear. And uh, finally, Shane McGowan of the Pogues, as everybody said, my God, he's still alive. He died at 65. <laughs> he was a hard-drinking guy. Great band, the Pogues. Uh, you can read more about him in our show notes. And this holiday, you'll probably hear Shane McGowan duetting with Kirsty McCall on the Pogues classic, Fairy Tale of New York. It's about Irish immigrants in America, a man in a drunk tank on Christmas Eve, and the insults, including some homophobic ones, that he and his wife trade with one another. Uh, it's, it's a holiday classic, and it returns to the UK charts year after year, just like Brenda Lee did it 
uh, maybe this could be the year that the Pogues top the British charts with Fairy Tale of New York. I'm rooting for them. And it's fitting that that would be one of his great songs because Shane McGowan was born in 1957 on Christmas Day. Oh, okay. Wow. So he almost made it to 66. Exactly. And we almost made it uh, under two and a half hours. Yay! Uh, sure. Uh, when you take <laughs> exactly. a week off, that's what's going to happen. I, I didn't mean to take a week off, by the way. I will tell you this. I found out, of course, the last day that you could go and ask the hotel to make your, your internet faster so that you, really? you could... Really? Uh, and so I did, It's and it still wasn't uh, working properly. As Yeah. It's, oh. uh, <laughs> will there be a show next week? I forgot to ask you at the top of the show. Yes, there will be. Great. But you, what you about what? the week after? Make... Are, you tr- are you traveling for Christmas? What's happening with you? Uh, what about I don't the 24th? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe we should do this offline and not bore our, our listeners with uh, some uh, sausage making. Uh... No, they'd love to know if you're going on a trip. They're rooting for you, Sperling. Don't you know that? Oh, of course. But uh, you know what? Find out. Stay tuned. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace. I think Stitcher finally went away. Spotify. Uh, anywhere they give podcasts away for free, you can usually subscribe to us and sometimes rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. It helps us out when you do. Uh, that information can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find all those ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter. We're at showbizsandbox is our handle. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can find us. Uh, there. And of course, showbizsandbox.com is where links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. Their new single, Mother Nature, is out now, and their new album, Loss of Life, comes out February 23rd. Uh, they also have a website, who is mgmt.com, is where you can learn more about them. Michael Giltz is a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's 704houserstreet.com. That's got to be a Norman Lear reference. It is. Well done. It's the address of Archie Bunker's house. Uh, and they oh, did a spinoff right. with a black family moving into his house, kind of like that sequel to Raisin in the Sun. So 704houser, top tip of the hat to Norman Lear, who made some great television. I watched All in the Family and all those shows uh, all throughout the 70s. Now, uh, is the tip of the hat because he always wore a hat? or Exactly. Well done. Well done again. He always had that sort of sailory type floppy white hat thing, didn't he? Yeah, bucket hat. Yeah. Now, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that particular website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work can be found. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs>